Hey Life Canton, Roger here, one of the directors, and I'm so glad that you're joining us, especially if you are a first-time listener. If you are, be sure to follow, like, subscribe, all of that stuff so that other people can also discover uh, our messages, our podcasts, other things that we put out. I want to remind you that uh, we are in our series on Mark. We're in week seven now, and you're going to hear a message from Pastor John soon. Uh, But before we get to that, I also want to remind you that we believe that you belong, whether you're a first-time listener or uh, someone who attends church regularly, our church regularly. uh, We want to invite you to get involved into this community because you belong to God, so you belong to us. And the best way for you to do that is to fill out a Connect card on our life. Uh, can web page or on our church center app uh, so be sure to do that so this week pastor john is going to teach us about a important literary feature in the book of mark and show us how that feature will help us better understand mark's message so give that a listen and i'll catch up with you in just a moment amen you may be seated Welcome, family and friends. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor to be with you and worship those of you here in the room and those of you online. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark, where we're walking through chapter by chapter, learning all that God wants to teach to us. We're about halfway through, so I want to do kind of a midway check-in with you. How's it going? You learning a lot? You being challenged and encouraged? Maybe sometimes you feel like you scratch your head a little bit, like, what was Jesus trying to say here? I don't understand what's happening. And sometimes scriptures like that, where we need a little help to understand. So can I give you a cheat code for the Gospel of Mark? It sounds like you don't want it. Can I give you a cheat code? (laughs) You're like, is there one? Can I have one? Yes, you may. Uh, So when Mark wrote his Gospel, he was not as concerned with telling the stories in the order they happen, but more concerned with sharing the meaning of what happened. You see, the gospel is filled with stories from firsthand accounts of the disciples who walked with him. Now, what's interesting is Mark did not walk with him. He he came later, but he talked closely with Peter. We know from from church history that he talked with Peter as he wrote his gospel. And of course, Peter is one of Jesus' innermost disciples who knew him, who walked with him. And so I can imagine those two sharing and Peter's like, hey, you've got to share the meaning of these parables because oftentimes when we, we heard a parable or we read about it in scripture, no one knows what they mean. Like even the disciples, they're like, Jesus, we don't know what that story means. Can you help us? And so he would take them um, in private and explain the parables to them. Well, guess what? We weren't there. The crowds weren't there. They didn't always hear the meaning of these parables. And so Mark and Peter were like, we got to make sure they know the meaning. And so what Mark did was he, he layered these stories on top of each other so that they could interpret each other and sometimes bring contrast so that we could understand what Jesus was saying with the parables. And there's actually a name for this technique that he used. It's a highly sophisticated theological term. You ready for it? A Mark sandwich. (laughs) seriously, that's what they call it, a Mark sandwich. And I want to give you a picture of what this looks like. Yes, that's a hamburger. A hamburger is a type of sandwich, okay? Now, how many of you are hungry when you see this delectable hamburger? How many of you are going to get hamburgers for lunch today after the service? Uh, The local restaurants can thank me later. But uh, this is a picture of a Mark sandwich. And this is part of how Jesus, uh, or Mark would do it as he wrote his gospel. There's a story that Jesus tells or that Mark tells, and then a parable from Jesus, and then another story. 
Now, these could be in any order. Sometimes it's story, story, parable. Sometimes parable, story, story. Sometimes he even layered the parables on top of each other. And you look for a thread. What's the common theme in these three stories? Because he does this very intentionally to help us understand the meaning of what Jesus is teaching, okay? And so today in Mark 7, we have a Mark sandwich. So I'm going to walk you through this layer by layer. We're going to look at the bun and then the meat and then the other bun, okay, of this Mark sandwich. And this is a snapshot of what we'll be looking at today. We're going to hear stories about the Pharisees because Jesus is going head to head with them again, like he usually does. Then we're going to hear Jesus share a parable about the heart and then a Gentile woman. What's interesting is these are three what seem to be very random stories. It almost seems like Mark just threw them in there and said, hope you can understand what they mean. But he's very, very intentional with how he puts these stories together. So we're going to discover a common thread in these three stories as we learn together, okay? So as we begin in Mark 7, um, the story unfolds where the Pharisees come to Jesus. And again, they have another thing that they're griping about, that they're mad about. And this time it's about washing hands. The disciples were not washing their hands before they ate their dinner. You know, when I read stuff like this, I'm like, really guys? Like, get a life. Don't you have more important things to worry about than washing your hands? But to the Jewish people, this was a very important thing. They had a a ceremony, a ritual for washing their hands. They actually had this special cup with two handles on it, and they they would fill it with water, and they'd take the cup and pour water on their right hand three times, and then take the other handle, pour water on their left hand three times. And while they were, their hands were still wet, they would pray over their food. And they would pray to God that he would bless them. Now, this was a very sacred ritual because it cleaned them. It made them pure. It made them holy. It washed away not just with the dirt on their hands, but the dirt in their, in their lives. Like It made them clean to be able to receive God and receive his people. And cleanliness was a big deal for the Jews because if you were unclean, if you were unholy, then you were separated from God and from community. You could not be in community until you were clean again. So this was a big problem for them. And they go to Jesus and talk to him about this issue that his disciples were not following this hand-washing ceremony. Let's pick up the story right there in Mark chapter 7. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And we'll go to verse 8 just to get the whole picture here. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Now we're going to come back to this verse in just a moment here. But I want to unpack the, the previous verses first. Because we have to understand why Jesus is so upset with them. I mean, God gave them this hand-washing ceremony as part of their law in the Old Testament. Look, why isn't it unfair that Jesus is now ripping on them for, for this very ceremony that God gave them? What's going on? Well, this became a tradition that was corrupted, and they lost sight of the heart of it. And Jesus pinpoints some very specific things that he's upset about with them. He calls them hypocrites, double-minded, two-faced. Why, why is he so upset with this? 
because they have outside in faith. They're so focused on all these things externally, the washing of hands, their seasons, their festivals, all the things that you need to do right to go through the motions, to be right with God. It's all this outward show of faith to impress others, to show people how holy they are. And so Jesus is calling them out on their showy outside-in faith. He's saying, your hearts aren't in this. In fact, he was so angry with them one time that this is the ultimate roast. You ready for this? He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Talk about a roast. Jesus said that to the Pharisees. Why? Because they, they made the outside look nice. They, they painted, you know, whitewashed tomb. It's, it's painted. It looks nice. But inside, it's full of dead men's bones. And he said, inside of you this, is this impurity, this disconnection, these hard hearts. You may look good on the outside, but you are unclean on the inside. And it's this outside-in faith that is very dangerous. What's so dangerous about it? Let's look at verses 6 through 7. Here Jesus is talking about the specifics of this outside-in faith. And as you saw on the graphic, that's our first part of the Mark sandwich. They're showing this outside-in faith from the Pharisees. And this is part of it that Jesus says, you honor me with your lips. What you say is just lip service. It doesn't mean anything. You're not actually living out what you're saying. In fact, they would make new laws and rules and put them on the people so that there was even more for them that they had to do to be right with God. And a lot of times they never practiced it themselves. So they were incredibly hypocritical. They gave good lip service, but they were not genuine in their faith. Then he says, your hearts are far from me. See, all this show on the outside prevents any change from happening on the inside. Their hearts are far from God and therefore cannot be changed. Their hearts are broken. Their hearts are stone. They're not flesh. Scripture has this theme of don't have a heart of stone, but have a heart of flesh. It describes God as the potter and we are the clay. He wants to mold and shape our hearts to be more like his. But can he do that with the stone? No, he can't. It's too hard. It's not teachable. And so he was challenging them because their hearts were not teachable. And what was the effect on their worship? Their worship is a farce. It's fake. It's not genuine. It's just a show for people and not for God. It doesn't come from the heart. See, add all these things up and this equals people that you can't trust because what they say and who they are are two different people. That's the definition of a hypocrite, right? We're saying and doing different things. And that's what Jesus is seeing in these Pharisees. And in verse 8, Jesus pinpoints the source of this outside-in faith. Let's look at verse 8 again. He says, For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And then he goes on to give a very specific example of this, which is, which is unique because Jesus doesn't often go into detail. He just he challenges us in order to bring us closer to God. But he's like, I need to give you an example to prove my point. And he brings up this concept of a Corban offering that was very common in the Old Testament and in first century Judaism where they would offer something to God, whether that's uh, food or materials or even a person to say, God, I dedicate this to you or a home, a piece of property. And when they would dedicate that offering, call it a Corban offering, they could not um, take it back. They, they could not be used for their own purposes. It had to be totally dedicated to God. 
Now, here's where this kind of gets off kilter because sometimes these traditions can lose their heart and kind of get corrupted, and that's what happened. So, for example, a Pharisee uh, would give a Corban offering to God, um, his house, and say, God, I'm, I'm dedicating my house to you to be used for your purposes as a Corban offering. But the problem is when his aging parents would come to him and say, hey, we need a place to stay. Can we stay with you? They would say, oh, nope, sorry. I've dedicated my home to God as a Corban offering. It can't be used for my own purposes, so you can't stay with me. And they would literally use a loophole in the tradition in order to not serve their parents. And then they blamed God for it. Said, oh, we, we gave this to God, and so we can't use it for you. Isn't that messed up? They're, they're using these traditions, these loopholes in these traditions to not take care of the people around them and then blame God for it. And so Jesus is pretty um, angry about this, as you can tell. Um, and they're using these loopholes, they're living in these loopholes, and they're trying to get out of what God commanded them to do in the first place. Let's see how Jesus responds to them in verse 11. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. There's the Corban offering, okay? In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. Those are strong words, aren't they? You cancel the word of God. You're going against Scripture. Your traditions are actually disregarding the Word of God. For example, the Word of God says this about genuine religion in James chapter 1, verse 27. This is the kind of faith that God longs for. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So Jesus is saying the pure and genuine religion that he's looking for cares for widows in their distress. Were the Pharisees caring for their widow mothers in their distress? No, they weren't, right? They were using their faith, over-spiritualizing it in order to not meet the needs of the people around them. And by doing that, they failed to live out this pure and genuine religion and they disregarded the word of God. God is literally saying, I would rather have you care for the people around you than to sacrifice for me. That, because that is the kind of faith that he wants. Faith that takes care of people. Faith that makes room to hear people's needs. To, to have a shoulder to cry on. To be a part of the healing process and restoration in someone's life. That is what faith is all about. But they've made it this super spiritual thing that's all about them and God and ignoring all the people around them. And that is never the kind of faith that God wanted for us. But they turned it in to some kind of outside-in faith that didn't look like what Jesus wanted. Now, we can hear these things and say, well, glad that's not us. Glad we don't have to worry about that. Glad we don't fall into traps like that. But we do, friends, don't we? There's a number of things that we could talk about today, but there's one specific thing that God put on my heart to share. And this is going to be challenging. Can I challenge you? More than that, can God challenge you? Can God speak to us to challenge us? When I think about what Jesus would challenge if he showed up today and looked at our traditions, 
I think the one that he would challenge the most is the salvation prayer. Why in the world would he do that? What is the salvation prayer? You know, when, when us preachers stand up here and we say, you know, if you want to give your life to Christ, repeat after me. God, my life is broken. I've been far from you. I want to give my life to you. I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. Amen. Right? The salvation prayer that we say. What could be so wrong about that? What could be so um, broken about that tradition? It's because we treat it like a gym membership. You know, when you go to a gym membership, they hand you this entry card that allows you to get into the gym, right? You swipe the card and you can go into the gym. They're not just going to give you this card if you don't pay anything. You've got to commit. You've got to invest in the gym and then you can work out. Does having a gym membership guarantee that you will get fit? Are you going to be in shape if you have this card? No, right? You can't just have the membership and get in shape. You've got to put the work in. Well, guess what? So often we treat the salvation prayer like a get out of hell free card. I said the prayer, I swiped the card. I'm going to heaven no matter what. I can live however I want to without any consequences because I know I've got the card. Does saying the salvation prayer guarantee that you will go to heaven? A little more quiet on that one, aren't we? Is it the prayer that makes you saved? It's not, right? You can't just swipe the card. You can't have a transaction with God and just automatically be ready to go to heaven. Now, I understand this is uncomfortable. We're going to keep wrestling through this, okay? What's the other thing about gym memberships? We don't show up, do we? How often have you had a gym membership, you paid the fees, and you just didn't show up? You don't have to raise your hand, but I will. Because <laughs> I went to Planet Fitness for a year and paid $10 a month and went probably three times, okay? Just to be real with you. And this is actually part of their business model. You can look this up. They, they make the price so low that it's not even worth it to cancel it, even if you don't go. Like, you just keep paying $10 a month because you might have enough gumption to get up the next day and work out, right? So if I might have the chance of working out, then I should probably just keep my membership. It's not a big deal. It's just $10 a month. They count on you not showing up. In fact, did you know that USA Today reports that 67% of gym memberships go unused? 67% of those who have memberships do not use them. And every year, $397 million is wasted annually on unused gym memberships. Can I say that again? $397 million on unused gym memberships. It's like we think that if we have the card, if we have the membership, we don't have to do anything else. We don't need to show up and work out. We're good to go. And just like that, the salvation prayer can produce lazy faith. If I know that I'm already saved, I don't even have to show up to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I've met all the requirements for heaven, so I can just kick back and relax. Like I'm retired in my faith because I've already checked all the boxes, and now I can just wait for eternity. I don't have to serve anyone. I don't have to sacrifice because, again, I swipe the card. The transaction is made. I'm good to go. Ouch. Oftentimes, this is how we can approach our faith. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who've said the prayer, but their lives look nothing like Jesus. 
Was this just an empty prayer that was said? Or was the heart in it? Do you see how this is just like the outside-in faith of the Pharisees? It was all about the show. It was all about the lip service. I said these words. I said the salvation prayer with my mouth, but my heart is far from God. My heart is not in it. I'm not engaged on a daily basis. And just like the Pharisees, these empty words lead to unchanged hearts. Listen to what James says about this kind of outside-in faith in verse 2. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, I wish you well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Dead and useless. You know what I thought of when I read this was the Pharisees, right? They, they told their parents, like, I know you need a place to stay, but I can't let you stay here. I wish you well. Have a good day. And this outside-in, showy faith that's more committed to God than to people, and it's missing something. It's not enough, as James says. A question for you. Did Jesus ever ask anyone to say the salvation prayer in Scripture? Nope. You're not going to find it anywhere. What did he do? He said over and over and over again, come and follow me. Be my disciple. Walk with me. Learn to do life the way that I do it. Learn to live in the kingdom of God. Do you know that the term Christian was, came about because it differentiated between the Jews and the Christians? The, Jews, or the Christians came out of the Jewish faith and saw it as a fulfillment of the faith because Jesus is the Messiah, right? So they were called Christians. But what did they call the people who walked with Jesus? Disciples, right? Did you know there's a difference between a Christian and a disciple? A Christian may have the title, they may have said the prayer, they may have swiped the card, but they're not walking with Jesus. They're not a disciple. And I'm not here to give you a guilt trip. I'm not here to shame you. I want to stoke the coals of our faith for us to realize that there's so much more here, that this outside-in faith is not enough there must be more. There must be something different. And that is what Jesus is challenging the disciples to look at, to look beyond this outside-in faith because it's not enough. What's the fatal flaw of this kind of faith? It's that it never touches the heart. It's so focused on the outside that it forgets what's happening on the inside. And the heart desperately needs to be changed. The heart is broken. Let's see how Jesus describes the heart next. This is verses 14 through 15 in Mark chapter 7. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you, not this outside-in faith. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. What comes from the inside out. 
Okay, let's continue in verse 20. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of the person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So when we lose our temper with our kids or someone cuts us off on the road and we get angry, we may think that it's our kids or the person who cut us off that's the problem. But guess what? The problem is in here. This is the source of my anger, not what's happening outside. So I need to look within to see this. I need to check my own heart. And now we've come to the meat of the, Luke, of the Mark sandwich. All right, This is the parable of the heart. Jesus is teaching us what's going on inside the human heart and what needs to be changed. Because outside-in faith does not change the heart, and that's a big problem because from that heart, as we read, comes evil thoughts, adultery, greed, lust, and envy. Russian writer and Eastern Orthodox Christian Alexander Solzhenitsyn, say that five times fast, had to practice for you guys, right? Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, The line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. He's just backing up what Jesus already said, right? That this line between good and evil runs through my heart, runs through your heart. That is where the battle is waged for goodness and evil. See, I experienced this whenever I see a Bronco drive by me, a Ford Bronco, because those things are gorgeous and I want one, okay? And so when they have it and I don't, I have a little bit of envy in my heart and I want it. And if I let that envy fester, if I just let it go, then it's going to turn into discontentment. And I have a Mazda CX-9 with a beautiful kayak, bright yellow kayak on top, and it's a great car and there's nothing wrong with it. But if I let that envy grow in my heart, I'm going to start hating my car and wishing it was a Bronco. I might even lay my hands on it and pray that it would turn into one, but it's not going to, okay? Uh, Because it's from this heart of discontent, this heart of envy. And you might say, well, if I just get a Bronco, then then I'll be good. Like, I, I don't have to envy it anymore. Nope, I'll just envy something else, right? Because it becomes this cancer within the heart that infects it and cannot be cured unless we deal with it from the inside out. All of these issues come from the heart. Now let's go back to the Pharisees for a moment. They didn't realize this truth. They didn't understand the parable of the heart that Jesus is trying to teach them. You see, they just wanted to wash their hands, didn't they? But Jesus wanted to wash their hearts. Their hearts were dirty. Their hearts were broken. Their hearts were the source of all this unholiness. And that's where the unholiness is in us too, friends. Outside in faith cannot clean the heart. There must be another type of faith. I sure hope so because we're stuck if there isn't, right? We have this broken heart as well. Let's keep reading to see if there's another kind of faith that we can have other than outside in faith. Mark chapter 7, 
verses 24 through 30. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was going to, but he couldn't keep it a secret. See, this is, he is so popular. There's so many people are coming to see him, to hear his teaching and to be healed that he has to go about in secret because he needs some alone time. But not for this woman. She finds him. In verse 25, right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. And she begged him to cast the demon from her daughter. So we see this Gentile woman who's tracking Jesus down and and is desperate for him. She has desperate faith for him to heal her daughter. She knows that she can't do it on her own. She is desperate. She, her daughter is tormented by a demon. And she runs to Jesus. She gets on her feet and begs him, will you please heal my daughter? So friends, through this Gentile woman, we see desperate faith. Let's keep reading. Verse 20, uh, what is this, 27? 26 and 27. Since she was a Gentile born in Syria and Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Wait a second. Did Jesus just call this woman a dog? Yes, he did. To the Jews, the Gentiles were known as dogs. They were unclean, and this was a racial slur. Why would Jesus use a racial slur to talk to this woman? What was he up to? See, this is one of those moments where there's some mystery to this. We don't fully understand why Jesus is doing this. And in fact, like Jared talked about last week, oftentimes God says and does things that make us feel rejected. We don't understand him. We feel rejected by God. Do you think this woman feels rejected by God, by Jesus in this moment? He just called her a dog. He, yes, he, she probably does. Now, what was he doing? He already knows that she's desperate. Do you think maybe he was taking her faith deeper? Do you think maybe he was challenging her? See, the Pharisees were so offended by what Jesus was saying. Would she be offended too? Would she run away and just go to another healer? Or was her faith genuine? Did she just want Jesus for what he could do for her? Or does she really want him? Is he challenging her faith? You see, this is where we have to wrestle a little bit because we may not know the answer. But let's keep seeing what happens in the story. This Gentile woman, again, could have been totally offended by Jesus and run away crying, offended, hurt. But instead, she digs in even further. She has persistent faith. Let's see what she says. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. I just love like how gritty her faith is, right? Like she's persistent. She won't take no for an answer. She's like, I get it, Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. But isn't there scraps that we can have for our family? We need healing for my daughter. I will do whatever it takes to get it for her. Don't you have some scraps for me? We see this persistent faith that she has. And it's beautiful. How did Jesus respond? to this persistent faith. Good answer, he said. Now go home for the demon has left your daughter. 
And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. It's powerful. Powerful story. Look back at verse 29 for a moment. What do you notice about this? Does Jesus ever cast the demon out? Does he ever say anything to the demon? How, how does this woman know that the demon will be gone when she gets home? Like, what if, what if Jesus is just playing? I mean, he just called her a dog. Like, do you think he really cared enough to heal her daughter? What does she do? She trusts him with no questions asked. She just goes home. She knows that her daughter is healed. She trusts that Jesus is good at his word and that his daughter, her daughter is healed. This is trusting faith. She trusts him no matter what. She believes him. The Gentile woman had desperate, persistent, and trusting faith. Is this outside-in faith like the Pharisees? Does this look like them? No. This is completely different. This is inside-out faith. And now we finish our our Mark sandwich. We see the progression. This outside-in faith that the Pharisees had. This parable of the heart of Jesus saying, that's not going to reach your heart. You need a different kind of faith. And this woman, this Gentile woman, shows us what this inside-out faith looks like. Now, I can't help but notice the contrast here. You remember how in the beginning we talked about how these Mark sandwiches show contrast? How did the, the, the Pharisees treat their family? They didn't even have space for them in their homes, right? They used their religion as a loophole to not have to care for their family. How did the Gentile woman treat her family, her daughter? She was desperate. She said, I will do whatever it takes to get healing for my daughter. This is what the Pharisees were missing, friends. They had a cold, dead, lifeless, arrogant faith. But she had a desperate, persistent, trusting faith that came from the inside out. See, desperation, persistence, and trust are character qualities that come from the inside out. Desperation, persistence, and trust come from the inside out. While this Gentile woman may have been described as a dog and unclean on the outside, her heart was clean because of the desperation, persistence, and trust that she had in Jesus. The Pharisees were offended. She pushed past how she could have been offended by Jesus and instead dug in deeper. She trusted him. How can we have inside-out faith like this woman? It starts with desperation. Great desire for more of God. Do you have great desire for more of God? Do you wake up every day ready to dig into his word, ready to invite him to be a part of your life, to walk with you, to be a disciple, not just a Christian? Does that describe your faith? Is it something that is just a show on the outside or is it something that drives your faith from the inside out? See, if you're desperate for God, salvation is not a swipe card. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's anything but lazy. It's a step-by-step walk with Jesus. It's an invitation to become more like him, to allow him to transform our character so that when people look at us, they see more of Jesus. Friends, earlier I challenged the salvation prayer. 
And I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you said the prayer that you're not saved, okay? But I don't want you to trust more in a prayer than you trust the one you're praying to. Amen? Amen. The prayer does not save you. The prayer is a tool that God can use to help be a line in the sand that helps you step over from death to life. But it's just a starting line of the faith. It's not a finish line. Salvation is not a finish line. It's a starting line where we can grow every day in learning what it means to be in the kingdom of God, learning to be like Jesus step by step. When you said the prayer and you compare who you were then to who you are now, did your life change? Are you any different today than you were back then? Again, I'm not trying to give you a guilt trip. I'm just trying to stoke the flames, the coals in your heart. Because when you let those coals die out, they get gray and they burn out and they lose their heat. But when you stoke the coals, when you put the wood on the fire, when you invest in your faith, it starts to grow and build and become a conflagration that tears down the kingdom of darkness. That's the kind of faith that God wants you to have. He wants to invest in light inside of each one of our hearts. That's what he wants for us. And you can't get that with outside in faith. You can't get that with a transactional relationship with God. It comes from a life on life, attached to Jesus kind of life, where every day you are growing in love for God, for others, and for yourself. Inseparably attached to him in relationship. Desperate faith takes another step to reclaim our identity in Jesus every single day. And a salvation prayer can start that, but it cannot sustain that, friends. So allow him to be the soil in your heart that produces and nurtures the seeds of the gospel that are planted. Allow him to feed that that seed to grow and develop. Allow him to be the sun that shines and allows those seeds to grow into a strong plant. As we heard earlier in Mark, this mustard seed that grows into a plant that provides shade for others, that is a refuge for the vulnerable, as Pastor Jared said. That's the kind of faith that he wants for us. We go wherever he goes. We listen to what he says. We follow his voice. We are his sheep. He is our master, and we are his friend. That's the kind of faith that he's calling us into. The life journey is one of our greatest tools to help you develop desperate faith. It's going to teach you how to become a disciple, how to to grow and train in your following of Jesus so that if he turns, you know how to pay attention to turn with him. You can hear his voice. You can become more like him. And it's a great tool that will help you. What is your next step on the life journey? We have courses starting on September 17th. We'd love for you to be a part of that journey. There's facilitators in this room who want to walk with you in that and help you grow as they grow with you. All right? So that's a great way to invest in desperate faith. We see not only desperation in this Gentile woman, we see persistence. Persistence is endurance despite difficulty or opposition. Her daughter was possessed by a demon. Can you imagine that? If your son or daughter was possessed by a demon, how helpless you would feel, how you would pray, how you would do whatever you can to free her but nothing worked. And so she was persistent. I'm sure she went to other faith healers, to other people to try to get healing for her daughter, but nothing worked until she met Jesus. And even Jesus 
calls her a dog. And she has to be persistent to dig in, to, to allow his challenge to take her faith deeper. And she is willing to be persistent until healing came. Are you willing to be persistent until healing comes? I don't know what that looks like for you. And by the way, healing is not just in body. It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's physical, it's relational. There's five-dimensional healing that God wants to work into our lives. And sometimes that healing will not come in its fullness until eternity. But isn't that the ultimate healing? That we get to be in heaven with God for eternity with no weeping or mourning, no gnashing of teeth, but joy and connection and intimacy unending. That is the ultimate healing. And if we are persistent in our faith, we will get to experience that with God. Can you earn your salvation? No, you can't. But salvation is a moment and it's a process. Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let it be this process of shaking off the old and living into the new. The last piece of inside out faith is trust. Confidence that God's heart is good. Can you trust a Savior that calls someone a a racial slur? What do we do when we don't understand what God says or what God does? These are hard things to wrestle with. There, There are mysteries in our faith that we don't fully understand. But here's what I know. Even though we may not fully understand why Jesus is willing to say these words to this woman, his heart is good. How do we know that? Because he heals her daughter, right? Even though he says this, even though he challenges her faith, he's willing to heal her, her daughter. His heart is good, and his track record is perfect at being good. No matter what happens, even if we don't understand what God is doing, we can trust that his heart is good. His heart is good for us. Here's the action step that I want to leave you with. to develop inside-out faith that is desperate, persistent, and trusting. This Gentile woman was willing to get on her knees and beg Jesus for healing, beg Jesus to come rescue her daughter. Her heart was clean. Her heart was desperate. It was persistent. It was trusting. What if we could have that same kind of heart for God? Let me pray. God, we receive your challenge that if we're not careful, just like the Pharisees, we can turn our traditions into something that cancels the word of God. May we not trust a prayer more than we trust the one we're praying to. And so right now, God, we come to you and we say, we want this inside out faith. We want to have a heart that is desperate, that is persistent, that trusts you. We don't want a transactional relationship with you. We want a growing, strong, vibrant, relational, attached connection with you that cannot wait to wake up and take another step in our walk with you. That we become more like Jesus as we walk with you. We are truly a disciple who knows you and loves you and talks to you and hears from you and has a dynamic relationship. We want that kind of inside-out faith. And we can have it right now. 
just by reaching out and saying, God, I want that. I want to walk with you. This is the starting line of our faith. And may we walk with you truly every day from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. Just want to remind you of a a couple opportunities. One opportunity is to receive support and encouragement from our congregation, uh, from our community, or even our staff. Uh, Fill out a connect card and indicate if there is prayer or some other kind of need or support and encouragement that you need. We would love to reach out and connect to you. Also, if you are someone who likes or is encouraged by the ways you see God moving in this community, I want to remind you that you can be a part of that movement, not just uh, by serving at the church or uh, getting plugged in, but also with your finances. Um, You can uh, give to the mission of God at this church and what he's up to via our, again, LifeCant website or our church center app. So be sure to take advantage of the opportunity of so much of the kind of work we do uh, that is responding to the needs and living out the kind of faith that Pastor John talked about, uh, that James talks about, is supported by your giving. So thank you if you are doing that. And if you're not doing that, I would encourage you to take an opportunity to do so. Uh, but with all that being said, I hope you have a blessed week and we'll see you again real soon. Bye.